91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. Next, Linda Sarsour is an activist hailing from Brooklyn, New York. Sarsour is most known for her work in organizing the 2017 Women's March, known to be the largest single-day protest in U.S. history, with 4 million participants across the U.S. It was held on the day after the inauguration of Donald Trump. In the past, Sarsour was the executive director of the Arab American Association of New York, an immigrant and refugee-serving organization in New York City. She currently heads Empower Change, a Muslim-led digital organizing platform helping to infuse Muslims in America in issues such as police brutality and racial, economic, and social justice. She also works with Until Freedom an intersectional racial justice organization which is most known for their work on the Breonna Taylor case in Louisville, Kentucky. Sarsour also penned a book titled We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders, a memoir of love and resistance. Linda Sarsour will be in Seattle this coming Sunday at 3.30 at the Rainier Arts Center. I caught up with her this week. She starts with how she got involved in community organizing. I have been an organizer and an activist for over 20 years, and it wasn't really something that I chose to do. Um, As a young person, my dream was to be a high school English teacher. And unfortunately, um, in 2001, when the horrific attacks of 9-11 happened, I was a college student in Brooklyn. And immediately after those horrific attacks, my community uh, was under attack. And it was under attack by the United States government, by local and federal law enforcement. And I watched things happen um, as a young person um, that I had never seen so in my face, you know, so overt. And um, as someone who was bilingual and spoke both uh, fluent English and fluent Arabic, you know, I was able to really help my community navigate, you know, the systems. And I was able to uh, use my language skills to translate for wives and mothers and folks who are losing their husbands and fathers and sons to um, this, this abyss, this, uh, this like black hole of law enforcement. And I thought I was doing it as a volunteer until I never left. And so I've been doing this work for the last uh, over 20 years now. And it really stemmed from this um, horrific uh, experience that I watched happen to my own people and continues to happen, not only to Muslim immigrants and Muslim Americans in America, but around the world. And so that's kind of my trajectory or like how I got here. I want to go back to that 2001 and how your community came under attack. There might be people who heard about attacks on mosques or the the Sikh community, or there have been a fair share of incidents in Seattle area. That was the reason for the, the hate-free zone that Senator Pramila Jayapal started. Tell me about, as someone who saw it was in New York, you know, ground zero, tell us about what it means, what was going on in terms of under attack. When the horrific attacks of 9-11 happened, which of course was a shock to not only all New Yorkers, but everybody around the country and around the world, including to Muslims. I mean, we were New Yorkers too, and we were horrified that, as you know, 75 Muslims also perished in the horrific attacks of 9-11. But because the hijackers um, and the terrorists on that day had declared their faith to be Islam and to be Muslim, it immediately, the response from the United States government was, how do we 
address what just happened? How do we instill some safety and security back into the American people? And what they did was they decided that all Muslims, that the Muslim community was the enemy within. And that meant that the United States government began to put forth policies and in fact jumped every loophole around civil rights and civil liberties just to violate the rights of Muslim Americans and Muslim immigrant communities, just to prove to the American people, we're going to keep you safe. And what they really meant was we're going to keep you safe from your neighbors, your neighbors that have never harmed or hurt you. These Muslim terrorists were not Americans. They were not from the United States. They did not have connections to our community. But the United States government engaged in policies, religious profiling. They were literally had law enforcement agencies that were kidnapping men from our community, literally. Like they were sometimes missing for two weeks, two months, you know, six months at a time. We did not even know where they were. Um, they literally came and raided homes and apartment buildings and coffee shops. I remember watching one time a raid on an apartment building um, in Brooklyn where they asked the men, they were coming out in the line and then they asked them to lay down um, outside on the sidewalk on their bellies. And I was watching their children in the windows, just looking in horror. Now, many of these folks, as you know, are immigrants themselves. These are people who fled political persecution, religious persecution, conflict, war, poverty to come to America. They, someone told them that in America, you could be free to be Muslim, that you could raise your family and you can thrive in this country. This is the land of liberty and freedom. And they were literally experiencing the very police states that they fled just by this experience that, again, had absolutely nothing to do with them. And that moment for me as a young organizer and I was a college student, I was radicalized by that. I was like, this is not OK. And I'm just not going to sit around and just be like, this must be normal. This is just how it's going to be. There was just something inside of me that you know fueled me. And I want people to know that since the aftermath of the horrific attacks of 9-11, a lot of things changed in this country. So when we hear things like the Patriot Act, you know, the losing of our civil liberties, the unwarranted surveillance that we experience, especially as political activists and immigrant and migrant communities and Black communities in America, these are laws that were put into place post 9-11, believing that that was the way we were going to keep America safe. When we think about agencies like ICE, and I know that there's been a lot of work in the in the larger Seattle area around abolish ICE and this idea that stopping these kind of ICE detention centers from opening up in our communities, people have to understand that there was no ICE before 9-11. ICE is a new agency. It was only created in 2003, and it was created as an agency that was supposed to, quote unquote, keep the terrorists out, right? That was the point of the ICE agency. And because there weren't really terrorists in America, they then wanted to justify the overbloated budget of ICE. And so where did they take ICE? They took them to the borders. And that's where they continue to literally terrorize migrant communities who are coming to America looking for asylum and for a better life. So a lot changed in America um, and it has impacted political activists as well as black and brown communities. Thanks for those uh, details. When this was going on, was it like, a few people in the community, and, or was it might be like 10 people? I live in, um, in a community in Southwest Brooklyn, and many people know my neighborhood um, called Bay Ridge. And we're talking about dozens of men. And um, later on, we can talk about hundreds of men who went through a program that was also created by the Department of Homeland Security. And this program was called NSEERS. And it was um, AKA the Special Call-In Registration Program. 
NSEERS stands for National Security Entry Exit Registration System. Sarsour describes an aspect of the program next, but generally it required citizens of certain countries like Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Indonesia, and many other Muslim countries to undergo secondary inspection upon arrival in and to complete additional registration upon departure from the U.S., The ACLU challenged this policy, and the program was abolished in 2011. In this portion, Sarsour refers to another time in our history during World War II when the Japanese-American community along the West Coast was forced into incarceration. So it was interesting when Donald Trump was running for presidency, a lot of people, you know, in solidarity with Muslims after hearing that different Republicans were talking about a registry system for Muslims, it already happened in America. And that is why a lot of Muslim Americans were really afraid of a Donald Trump presidency, because it's we've been here before. So I watched, you know, men in my community comply with a with a policy where um, they called for all men over the age of 16 who were not U.S. citizens or green card holders to come and register with the United States government. And that program, a lot of people thought, well, we should comply because maybe in the future there'll be some sort of amnesty or some sort of program where we can be on a pathway to citizenship and this would be a requirement. But there was also a lot of uncertainty. Was this a trick? Was this a program where you would go register with the government and then the government would just take you away and then you would never come back and see your family? And unfortunately, that did happen to some people. And this is all verified information. It's on the internet. You could read stories about NCRs. According to the Migration Policy Institute, over 83,000 participated in registering nationwide. As a result, over 13,000 were placed in removal proceedings. And this program cost American taxpayers millions of dollars. Um, you know, the Department of Homeland Security had to up their staff and up their equipment. And when I think about it, um, and you you read a lot of the statistics and you read the, read the research around NCRs, the point of the program was to find terrorists again. Guess what? Zero terrorists were found through the NCRs program. Not one single human being was convicted or charged with any terrorism-related charges based on that program. Why did some people get deported? Because of sim- simple immigration violations. Maybe somebody came here on a visa and overstayed their visa because there was circumstances why they couldn't go back to their countries. There are families in this country that are separated because of a program that decided to, you know, wastefully use taxpayer dollars to target Muslim immigrants. You know, there were dozens of men in my community, but hundreds across the country um, who literally disappeared off the face of the earth. And not only that, we had communities, and this is something folks could read about online, you know, in New York City, in Brooklyn, we have one of the largest Pakistani communities outside of Pakistan. And at some point, dozens of families just packed their bags and went back to Pakistan. They were like, if this is what America is, if we have to live in fear, we might as well go back to where we came from. And so there were Muslim communities that were self-deporting themselves. They were just packing their families and just taking them back to wherever they came from, willing to go back to poverty and instability and conflict just because you know, at least you're in a familiar place. At least you speak the language there. At least, you know, the people around you look like you and are you versus being in a country where all of a sudden you went from being someone's neighbor to being their enemy. But you didn't do anything to deserve that kind of, um, you know, status. And so 
you know, again, the ways in which our community was impacted. And you said this earlier, you know, the first person murdered immediately after the horrific attacks of 9-11 in retaliation was a Sikh man. And Sikhs are not Muslims. And not to say that if he was Muslim, that would have been okay. But the fact that it's it went beyond Muslims. Americans don't even understand who we are as Muslim people. So people think Sikhs are Muslim. Sometimes people see a brown person who might be Hindu and think they're Muslims too. So we were watching the the increase in hate crimes across the country, Muslim women who are visibly Muslim in hijab. And we still have that today. We had a woman just recently in New York City who was stabbed in the train station, a woman in hijab. Um, you watched, you remember the story in Portland, Oregon, three men intervened um, when a young Muslim woman was being harassed by a white man who then stabbed three men. And so these incidents happen across the country. And then we went to like the evolution of Islamophobia in America. So we went from hate crimes to, to actual systemic policies to then this new era where, if you remember in 2010, we got into this new era of mosque opposition. So there was the quote, ground zero mosque, and then the Islamophobes and the you know anti-Muslim folks across the country descended on New York City because a Muslim, you know, Muslims wanted to buy a building that happened to be in close proximity to the World Trade Center. And people went crazy. Like, like Muslims were not allowed to buy a building a few streets away from the World Trade Center. And it became, you know, not just, you know, people opposing it, but there were protests and there were protests in front of other mosques in New York City, including in Staten Island and Sheepshead Bay. Then we watched it happen in Temecula, California. We watched it happen in Michigan and in Sterling Heights. I mean, it was everywhere. People were opposing the right for Muslims to practice their religion freely and to be able to go through zoning boards and actually build religious institutions in America. So, you know, the, the Islamophobia continued to evolve and our community still till today you know, reels from, you know, of course, uh, militarism and the ways in which we look at Muslims abroad and the wars that we've been a part of, as you know, some of them perpetual. And then looking at our foreign policy when it comes to Palestine, when it comes to Iran um, and just the Middle East in general. Uh, and then also just in the policy that are still here. The Patriot Act is still here. The ICE agency is still here. There are things that are still in place, even though these many, many years later. What was it like for Muslim American populations before 9-11? I think that's interesting because there's always been kind of, and you you probably have experienced the same, there's always been, you know, Orientalism in this country, you know, fetishizing, um, you know, people from the Middle East, um, you know, we were, you know, still foreigners in this country or perceived to be foreigners, you know, Hollywood didn't really do a good job of humanizing our communities, you know, Muslims always were and Arabs were always the, you know, hijackers of the planes on the action movies, we were always somehow the enemy. And that's how we've been often portrayed, we were like these angry Arab people and angry Muslim people. And of course, again, even the um, conflation of Arabs and Muslims, you know, the fact that all Arabs are Muslims, that's actually not true. In fact, in America, most Arabs in America are Christians. But again, the media has conflated these two groups of people that, yes, absolutely do overlap, but oftentimes are also separate. Um, and so, you know, for me as a New Yorker, you know, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, um, and just have a lot of pride and kind of just being a New Yorker. And my parents, my dad's lived in New York now for close to 50 years. I mean, he loves New York. New York is who he is, but he's also Palestinian. So he has a very deep connection to his homeland, but also believes that New York City is his home. 
And we felt like, you know, with our neighbors and just in the community, I mean, I felt generally normal. I went to a very diverse public high school. I went to, you know, the CUNY system in New York for college. So, you know, very diverse. And so I had the privilege of living in a kind of diversity already. So there were other Muslim people in my community. And then I had other Muslim kids in my schools and things like that. So overall, I felt pretty normal. You know, I felt like, yes, I, I know my mom looks different. I know that we eat different food and things like that. But really 9-11 um, reaffirmed those bad stereotypes that people might have thought they knew about Muslims watching these Hollywood movies, watching the news, um, looking at conflict and war that was happening, you know, with the first Gulf War, et cetera. And, and so 9-11 came and here were these hijackers literally out of a movie. Like it was like, you know, here were these, you know, angry, you know, Arab, and they were all Arab, you know, most of whom from Saudi Arabia. And they were, you know, they hijacked this plane and they kill innocent people and our innocent fellow Americans. And then the, this kind of rage overtakes a lot of the American people. Um, and then the American government decides the way we will quell the rage of the American people and make them feel like we're doing something is we're going to target Muslim people. And so we went from being regular neighbors, regular people to your enemy, really. The, the state really deemed us the enemy of the state, um, you know, unwarranted surveillance of mosques across the country. And as you know, in New York City, I would highly recommend people read this book, but the Associated Press, there was a group of uh, reporters from the Associated Press that actually won a Pulitzer Prize for um, this expose, multiple articles expose about the unwarranted surveillance of the New York Police Department. Um, and they wrote a book, two of, the, uh, two of the AP reporters, each now works at different places. One works at the Washington Post, one works at the New York Times now. They wrote a book called The Enemy Within, um, and the book is um, just really chronicles the deep, um, pervasive type of surveillance that the New York Police Department was engaging in when it comes to the Muslim community. I mean, they were sending informants on whitewater rafting trips with NYU students. You know, these are Ivy League students who are, you know, going to whitewater rafting trips, sending informants. And the informant would come back with reports that would say things that this was all public documents because they were leaked from the NYPD. And it would say something like at 5 a.m., Muslim campers woke up and, you know, prayed like they were literally just chronicle normal things that the Muslim people do when they are together. There was also um, some folks that, you know, even made fun of the NYPD. There was a. Um, a mapping project that they did and people were calling it the Zagat survey of the best kebab restaurants in New York City. They literally chronicled all the Muslim owned businesses um, in New York City and identified them as Muslim owned businesses. You know, they were they went to the point of spying on um, children who were part of these uh, NYPD soccer leagues. So the NYPD has, as you know, basketball leagues, they do baseball. They also had soccer and as you know, it's a very big sport for kids who are from like the Middle East. And so there was a lot of kids in our community, including my kids, which were from my organization. We had a soccer team called Brooklyn United that actually won the NYPD Commissioner's Cup. Um, and believe it or not, we find out later on through these leaked documents that the NYPD was engaging again in surveillance with things like what they called rakers. They're, these are rakers are there. There were code words for their informants. These are people that would go to mosque. They would some of them would uh, just record sermons, record conversations. And there were others that we were more, you know, took it to another level provocateurs, people that would invoke conversation like would be showing people pictures of like babies blown up in Afghanistan to try to garner reaction 
from particularly young men in our community um, and engaging in acts of entrapment. You know, of course, if you're going to show a Muslim kid, you know, photos of blown up kids in Afghanistan that look like them, they're probably going to say something pretty anti-government. And so getting them on wiretaps and, you know, it, it was just a lot to the point where, and you read this in the book as well, and in the AP stories that are still out there, where people were saying things as far as, you know, I own a coffee shop and I do not allow our people to put the television on news channels because they don't even want to provoke news conversations with the people who are patroning their store. So you would watch only music or there'll be soccer games on their TVs. People started saying, we don't even trust the man and woman who pray next to us in the mosque because we don't know who is an informant. Because remember, the NYPD was placing informants that look like us, that speak our language. And where do they find these people? These are people that had some low level offense, you know, they might have been a street vendor who was vending without a permit. NYPD arrests them and says, hey, we can forget this ever happened if you do us a favor. And the favor usually is be an informant or a confidential informant. We had a guy who had an issue with credit card for fraud and was about to face five years in prison. He had five daughters. And the New York Police Department said to him, oh, you know, that you don't look like a guy that wants to spend five years in prison. You know, you have five daughters who are counting on you. So of course they knew his kind of circumstances and they were able to convince him to become a confidential informant so that he doesn't go to prison for wire fraud and for credit card fraud. So again, the, the, they just, the pervasiveness of the surveillance and may, and putting us under this type of surveillance, technological surveillance, you know, Again, using human capital in the form of uh, these um, confidential informants, they used to have these taxi cabs that used to scan all the, or they might even still have them, but they had them, especially at the time of this Associated Press articles, where they would have taxi cabs that's jobs were to scan all of the license plates of the people that went to those mosques. I mean, it just was level upon level upon level. Um, they went as far as to open what they called terrorism enterprise investigations, including on my organization at the time, the Arab American Association, which was an immigrant serving organization. We had beautiful children running around our center, you know, immigrant women learning English. You know, we were uh, doing domestic violence intervention prevention work. Uh, and this and in fact, we're still a target of the terrorism enterprise investigations, our mosques. And these were perpetual. There was no probable cause. You couldn't tell me why you opened an investigation. You couldn't tell me when the investigation was closed. I mean, again, it's like every level, everything we were doing was criminalized. Then the NYPD put out something that also exists on the internet. It was, they hired a former CIA agent who drafted this report called Radicalization in the West. And the report was supposed to explain to law enforcement agents the trajectory of how somebody becomes a terrorist, you know, what are the red flags? What are things to watch for? So they went as far as to say that if you see someone who becomes more religious, starts to frequent the mosque more, someone who maybe starts growing a beard, maybe someone who just was drinking alcohol and stopped drinking alcohol, maybe they start stop smoking. Basically for us, someone who's becoming a bit more righteous in their life, that to the NYPD was a pathway to radicalization. According to the NYPD analyst, the more religious you were, the more prone you were to become a violent terrorist in this country. So again, just being Muslim became a criminal act. How are people helping in a time like this? You know, what, what, what's interesting is um, 
after the uh, election of Donald Trump, if you remember, the first executive order that was signed by the Trump administration was the Muslim ban. That was when that was the first iteration of the Muslim ban. And if you remember immediately, um, it was very you know beautiful to see we had um, call, did a call out and the idea was everybody get to the airports because there were people at the airports that were going to be denied entry into the United States. And so our fellow Americans and neighbors and activists and organizers, they all went to the airports all around the country, Seattle, you know, Chicago, uh, you know, O'Hare Airport. They were at the Dulles Airport, JFK. I mean, they were everywhere. And um, I happened to be in Los Angeles when the executive order came down. And I remember just feeling like I just felt crushed. I was like, wow, we really got a lot of work to do. And I happened to just show up to the Los Angeles airport and just see all these people. And I was like, this is profound. Like, this is amazing. This is what solidarity looks like. But another part of me felt sad, Yuko, because I was organizing around in the post 9-11 era for 15 years and had not seen that kind of solidarity. Now, don't get me wrong. There were always, you know, more of the um, consistent, you know, radical organizers that were there in solidarity with us. And they were Jewish organizers and Latino and Black and Asian organizers and others and white progressives who were kind of the more lefty, who were with the Muslim community. They were with us since the horrific attacks of 9-11. But they were a small, committed few. And we had never seen mass mobilization in America to defend the rights of Muslims, um, it just never happened. Like there could be, there's nowhere where someone can point to me a year and say, "Look at all these thousands of people outside saying leave the Muslims alone.'" That just never happened. Um, and so the Muslim community for a long time, we were really suffering in silence. Um, you know, we did have a few close friends, but overall, we didn't have you know solidarity in the way that I believe we deserved. And I believe because of that, the United States government continued to expand policies that not only were uh, directed at Muslims and Muslims from, you know, the quote, Muslim majority countries, but then it started seeping into other communities. Like I said, you know, when the United States government created um, the uh, ICE agency, that should have been immediately something where people said, we don't need that agency. Don't spend more money on more you know, uh, policing of our communities in this way. We have plenty of policing in America. We have the FBI, we have bloated police department budgets. We don't need ICE. And, and we let it slide. And then what ends up happening is that we waste all the resources. They don't find terrorists. And what ends up happening is that ICE is now being used 100 miles within the border to terrorize immigrant communities at our borders um, and specifically on the Southern border. And so again, you know, I feel, um, you know, I look back and reflect and think to myself, like, what would have happened different, differently if there was more public mass mobilization to say Muslims are our neighbors and we will not stand for this vilification and demonization of our neighbors. Um, and because I think that did not happen, it paved the way for the many different policies that we see and continue to see happen both here in the United States and abroad, and brought us the Donald Trumps of the world, right? There was a boldness in the Republicans, particularly around this. But let's be clear, the Democrats um, were uh, voted for the Patriot Act too. Hillary Clinton voted twice for the Patriot Act. So we want to make sure that I'm not, that one thing about me is that I'm not, you know, loyal to any political party. I'm loyal to my people and my community that on both sides of the aisles, there's been a justification and excuses of, of, of and using words like buzzwords, like 
national security, you know, as a way to say that don't question what we do. We're doing this in the name of national security. And that's just the, for us, when Muslims here in the name of national security, that's just a smart way of saying we're going to violate their rights and the rights of your neighbors and you get to shut up about it. Um, it's just the way to give an excuse of violating people's civil liberties. There's that uh, messaging of, oh, it's really unfortunate and it's really not very nice, but it's for the uh, protection of our people. And then that starts affecting the mm -hmm. tone. What do you say to that? You know, it's interesting when I think about, you know, the horrific attacks of 9-11, and they really were horrific. I mean, there are 3,000 people were murdered, literally, like people that were just going to work and just regular people. And they were all kinds of people. They were white and they were black and they were Asian and they were, you know, Muslims and they were Jews and they were atheists. They were everybody. And so I understand like the horror and the rage you feel when you are attacked and your family members are literally stolen from you. And so I could understand that. I mean, I've had people that I love taken from me. And I know the rage that people can feel, but I think we have to be able to manage our emotions and really be able to understand the power that we give over to government. Um, and what's interesting is that you see how we, and we've made these arguments before, like, for example, you know, because of incidents that have happened spe specifically related to 9-11 and others, like, you know, when you go to the airport and you can't take liquids that are more than, you know, three ounces, right? There are certain things that we did differently after the horrific attacks of 9-11. What's interesting is that the, the thing that we really suffer from in America is an epidemic of gun violence, right? Um, you know, we literally have mass shootings like on the weekly basis and our children literally die. I mean, whether you're talking Sandy Hook or Uvalde or you're talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the kids that got killed in, you know, in Florida in the, in high school, and, and then they created March for our lives. And it's like, you know, we have all this movie theaters at the post office, you know, everywhere, all we go churches at mosques, at synagogues, you know, the, the horror that we've experienced over the last many years around gun violence, and nobody wants to change the laws about the guns, you know, that's the thing also about the ways in which policies are, are used and why certain communities are then leveraged to change law so that we can target certain minority communities in America. So my thing is like, if the horrific attacks of 9-11 really changed the trajectory of how we do law enforcement, how we, how we you know, do quote counterterrorism. So what the hell are the policies when you have literally mass shootings killing our fellow Americans? Um, you know, I was in Buffalo just a few months ago. I mean, we had, you know, regular people shopping at a supermarket that were literally murdered, um, you know, at Walmart, you know, again, everywhere, like the little kids that are in an elementary school, like when do we as Americans get moved? Are we not moved by the murder of children? And we have so much debate in America about guns and they want to take our guns from us. And, and I'm just, you know, floored. And I think for us, you know, what we say is that, you know, we should never be in a position to ever give up our civil liberties um, under any circumstances. There is never a good reason. If you believe that someone is engaging or is about to engage in some sort of terrorist or criminal activity, you must have evidence and probable cause before you strip people of their civil liberties. That we are in a country that's supposed to uh, care about um, and center due process. Everybody deserves their day in court. And unfortunately in America, it seems that that only works for some people. And it doesn't work for us. And there's multiple justice systems in America for different communities. And 
definitely in America, I believe this wholeheartedly, there's definitely a separate justice system in America for Muslims. And I'll give you one more example, because I think people don't even understand the extent of the horror. So a lot of people hear about something called Guantanamo Bay. And Guantanamo Bay is a prison in Cuba. And basically, um, it was kind of a place where they were holding what they were calling terrorists. Now, you know, many of the men that were in Guantanamo have never been to court, have never been, you know, uh, convicted of any crimes. And you know, that many of them as, you know, have been released now back to their home countries, et cetera. But a lot of people focused on Guantanamo. Guantanamo was, you know, analyzed as a place of torture, as a place that is not equipped for any human being, regardless of who they are or what you think that they did. What people don't know is we actually have Guantanamo North that's literally on U.S. soil. One of them is in Indiana. Um, and what we mean when we say Guantanamo North um, is that the Bureau of Prisons created what they call CMUs, Communications Management Units. And these are units where you have absolutely zero access to the outside world. You're only allowed to choose one family member uh, to talk to, and that's maybe on a monthly basis. And that that family member has to sign documents saying that they will not relay conversations that they had with you to the rest of your family. Um, you have limited access to an attorney. You do not have access to the media. You are not allowed to tell your story. You don't even have access to what the current events of the world are. But to make matters worse, a lot of, so, so Muslims are like 1% of the, or less than 1% of the U.S. population. We make up about close to 75% of those in the CMUs. And on top of that, what makes the CMUs even more horrific is that many of the men who are in there, most of whom are men, um, have been what they call convicted by secret evidence. So imagine you sitting in a prison, maybe convicted for 15 years, 20 years, maybe to life. And when someone asks you why you're in there, you say, I've been convicted by secret evidence. That means that you don't know why you're in there because the United States government has deemed that whatever reason you're in there for is a breach of national security, that if they told people why something would happen to our national security or it would violate our national security or, or, threat our, or threaten our national security. I can't imagine being in prison at all. But to be in prison under charges or convictions of secret evidence, not knowing why I am in there is just something beyond a psychological warfare that I cannot understand. So I just say to the American people and to folks who listen and our friends in Seattle, that as much as we believe there's injustice, people don't know the half of it, the half of it of, of what our country is capable of, of, of stripping people of their humanity, of stripping them of their families, and really looking at people and deeming them evil or criminal or terrorists just based on who they are, maybe where they come from, what their nationality is, what their ethnicity is. And, and again, that breaks my heart to know that there's also been so many men in our country deported back to their home countries because they did something like violate an immigration visa or something like that. They were never a threat to our country. They were hard workers. They paid taxes. Um, and we decided that their children weren't worthy of a whole family. Um, and that's not something that we should be ever sit back and say, that's okay. It's not okay. I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, if you're a leftist, if you're conservative, I don't care who you are. Our children deserve to be with their families. That should be the fundamental principle that at least at that level we should agree on. Let's go into the Muslim American, Arab American community and, and what it looks like on the ground today. We assume sometimes what we think communities care about, um, just by who they are, virtue of who they are. And as an organizer and someone who's been organizing in Muslim communities across the country for 
over two decades, really the Muslim community priorities are those of every other community. I mean, these are communities that are, you know, reeling from the lack of affordability. You know, they um, are looking for affordable housing. You know, they want they want to raise the wage. They want they don't want to work two three jobs just to support their families. Um, these are communities that want access to health care. Uh, you know, they support things like universal health care. And if you went across the Muslim community, it's a very widely discussed issue that we support Medicare for all. We believe that we should have, um, that people shouldn't have to be, you know, on their deathbed to go to an emergency room, that we should have access to preventative care. These are communities that care about refugees because many of them are refugees themselves and have now become American citizens. And so they support immigration reform and refugees. They support, you know, even there's so, so much... Um, misconceptions even about things like reproductive rights you know we as muslim women do support reproductive rights in fact we we come from a faith that has specific parameters about around things like abortion in the sense that it is not prohibited in islam you know for women um, to choose abortion of course um based again on some parameters so there are so things like when you're trying to take my access to health care when a bunch of white christian men are deciding what when, when i can get health care when i can't get health care it's not something that we support in our muslim communities um we support um you know things like ending mass incarceration that's an important issue in our community as you know our community is quite diverse um so not only do we reel from people being impacted by the immigration detention system but we also have a large black and brown population who are also um have been subject to incarceration um in many parts of the country including like places like new york city philly detroit etc and so we find that our community also, because we are connected to people abroad, we care about foreign policy, we care about Palestine, and we care about the well-being of Rohingya Muslims who are now refugees in Bangladesh. We care about Muslim Uyghur Muslims who are in concentration camps in China. We care about, you know, uh, the the economic collapse of Lebanon. You know, these are these are people like we are. We come from such diverse communities who have connections to people abroad, and so you'll tend to see a lot of Muslim communities who are very um, you know, in tune with foreign policy and what's kind of happening around the world. So we are a community that's diverse and care about issues that all Americans care about, which is why it made sense for a woman like me who was already an organizer and an activist to then become one of the leaders of the Women's March. And it was a very natural trajectory that I was already an intersectional organizer. I was very well known in the movement. And I was kind of, you know, working like overtime that year in 2016 especially around elections and kind of kind of moved up the ranks as a national surrogate for Bernie Sanders at the time. And I was the first ever Muslim woman um, to be a national surrogate for a major presidential campaign. I mean, I was wearing hijab. I was the first one ever. This never been seen in our country before. I was like introducing a presidential candidate at, you know, rallies across the country um, in, in places like Madison, Wisconsin, and seeing someone like me come there and say, hey, vote for this Jewish guy who's going to help us, you know, transform our country. And then from there, you know, um, I went to the Women's March and it was a very interesting decision to make because, as you know, the original kind of idea for the Women's March stemmed from white women. And these are white women who all of a sudden decided that America had a sexism and racism problem. Um, and because Donald Trump, you know, was so overt with it, you know, he kind of, you know, was in your face with it, except for women of color we were like, welcome to our world, like welcome to the party here. And so, you know, going to the Women's March, my role really, I had a few roles in the Women's March. Um, 
you know, my main role was I was the main fundraiser. A lot of times people think and see things that are grand and think that it was white people that raised the money. It wasn't white people that raised the money. It was me that um, was leading those efforts, getting sponsorships from across the country and other, you know, partner organizations and using all the relationships that I had made over the last, you know, decade and a half at that time. And then my other role was I was part of the program committee. I was a leader on the program committee. And it was important for me there to be able to reflect my intersectional organizing in a program that was able to speak to the American people. And this is who we are. So we, for example, you know, I did not engage or I was rejecting the, the idea of tokenization. You know, if you were going to do Muslims, I, you were not going to just bring one Muslim lady and put her on the stage and tell the people these are the Muslims. And I bought a South Asian Muslim. I bought an undocumented Muslim girl from Staten Island. I had uh, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali's daughters. They too are Muslims and they are the daughters of legendary civil rights leaders. We also had a hip hop artist from Oakland, California, who was a Muslim woman in hijab. That was the best performance of the evening. She beat all the celebrities. Everybody was talking about her afterwards. And I had an attorney, a civil rights attorney for my community who was talking to the people about the th work that she had to have do over the last you know, decade and a half. And making sure that our program included Asian folks and Jews and Muslims and, and undocumented people and LGBTQ people and um, all kind of people that we, this is America. This is, we are either we're in this together or we're not. We just got to make up that, make up our minds. And so that Women's March was powerful in that way. But I'll be honest with you, go into the conversation I continue to have. It was not an easy space to organize in, you know, it, there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into trying to explain to people, you know, what real transformative change looks like. It's hard to explain to people that our enemy is not Donald Trump. And so we started going around the country training women in Kingian nonviolence, which is the ideology of Dr. King in this month. And one of the things that we taught white women was that uh, a principle of Dr. King's is attack the forces of evil, not the people doing evil, which meant that Donald Trump was not the focus of the Women's March, that we were a, a movement that was you know, focusing on eradicating racism and sexism and ableism and Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and anti-Asian hate and, you know, the goes on and on. And, and, and if we understood that, we would be able to transform this country much faster. And I think what we tend to focus on, a lot of people tend to focus on police officers, right? They tend to focus on who the president is, or they tend to focus on the bad mayor that they have. It's beyond the people doing the evil work because they are working in an evil system and unless we are committed to that. So again, there was a lot of tension between white women and women of color because women of color understood the intersections in ways that white women didn't. For example, white women were like, what does criminal justice have to do with women's rights? They couldn't see the intersection there. You know, we were talking about immigration and immigration reform. How does immigration connect with or intersect with women's rights? White women in America want to figure out, like, what does Palestine have to do with women's rights? And so the idea of being able to get white women to understand that their liberation is bound up not only with the liberation of other women in America, but their liberations also bound up with women all around the world. And that if we're going to claim feminism or claim women's rights, that we should also be, you know, in horror to know that there are women in Palestine who don't have access to health care, right, who don't have freedom of movement. And you know what? You can also be outraged at governments like Iran who force women to wear hijab and engage in morality policing of women's bodies and what women choose to wear. But we could also be outraged at the same time with countries like France, right, who ban Muslim women from wearing hijab. And, and, and literally, we have limited options for employment in places like France based on hijab. We can't even go 
to the beach in France on wearing long sleeve bathing suits. I mean, that's how pervasive their Islamophobia um, is. So again, teaching white women that you can be a lot of things at the same time. These things are not contradictory. And in fact, it is uh, a moral imperative for us to be consistent in the ways that we show up for women around the world. And so again, this is, you know, a long time coming and it's going to require a lot more work from us um, because I think that not all white women, but a lot of white women are still trying to unlearn a lot of the actual patriarchy that they grew up with. Um, and in fact, even the ones that believe that they're feminists, there are still some things inside that have not been undone or dismantled that they still need to work through. And also, as you know, the media doesn't help also. Dr. King was assassinated. You know, Dr. King didn't just die. He was assassinated at a time when more than two thirds of Americans did not agree with Dr. King or the calls of the civil rights movement. You know, Dr. King was a target of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He was demonized. He was vilified sometimes by his own people. For me, I tell people all the time that, um, you know, we're going to have to challenge ourselves to hear the hard things. Uh, but at the same time, we know that, and they did this to the Women's March, that when there are leaders, particularly when they are black or brown um, uh, or come from marginalized communities, the media is going to engage in ways to take our power from us. And that includes slander and vilification and taking us out of context. And what I found out, Yuko, in just September of 2022, there is a front page article of the New York Times. It starts on the front page. And then when you open the New York Times, it's literally two huge spreads where I found out that during the time of 2017, 2018, kind of the height of the Women's March, the Russian government, you know, and I don't blame everything on the Russians, I'm not one of those, but um, they basically ran a well-funded, well-coordinated campaign out of St. Petersburg, Russia, through the, the military intelligence division of the um, Russian military, a disinformation and misinformation campaign. Um, and they were masterful and they used... Um, already existent sentiments, you know, from kind of the right wing, and they amplified it to the point where it seeped into mainstream. You know, they used me, which is why the New York Times article is really fascinating, because they decided that I was the right person to target, because they understood American racism, that Islamophobia, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian sentiment is actually crosses all spectrums. And they knew that it's a it's an acceptable form of bigotry. So they wouldn't really see a lot of resistance to it in, in the same way that they might see resistance to other forms of bigotry online. And so I will say I'm a survivor of this campaign that seeped into my daily life. Um, people were showing up to events. I went to states that were open carry states where men showed up with guns to events that I was at. I had um, credible death threats to my life. People posted my address, my little home address where my children live online People sent me mail. They sent my mother mail. They would call my my older mom um, and leave her voicemails on her landline that nobody has, but my mom still has a landline with the voicemail. It was something that really um, impacted my mental health and it impacted me as a community organizer, as an activist. I had to hire private security, um, you know, and, and, you know, in the nonprofit, you could, we don't make that kind of money. And at that time I wasn't, and I had to pay for security um, because I, I was not going to not do this work. I was going to find a way. And if that meant that I had to hire security, I would. So again, the women's March, while it was one of the most memorable times of my career, it was also the, the most difficult time of my career. Um, and I think in America, that people weren't prepared for a progressive Muslim Palestinian woman in hijab that believes in a free Palestine, that believes in 
in this kind of intersectional justice that I fight for. We, they, people deemed us too powerful. Um, we were building too much goodwill and political capital and people decided they were going to destroy us. And I think that at some level, while the Women's March is still around, it absolutely does not have the same political capital that we had the potential of having. The article Linda Sarsour referred to is September 18th, 2022 New York Times coverage on the results of an investigation into what was behind the public organized harassment of Sarsour. A link to the story will be on the KBCS website at kbcs.fm. In your reflection on all of these years of work and all that you have faced, what are the most powerful ways that people can help? I appreciate that, Yuko. I think that the first and foremost is that we never despair. That's the thing I tell people. And I know that, you know, we just talked a lot about a lot of heavy things and, um, you know, there's a lot of bad things happening around us. Police shootings continue to happen. The migrants are still at the border. I mean, there's just still so much poverty, inflation and the way it's impacting our neighbors and sometimes us, Um, you know, there's just so much going on. And so I want people to know that the first important thing is that we never despair, um, that the better times are coming. And I think about this in the context of Dr. King, you know, Dr. King almost kind of had this weird feeling like, or at least I felt like he kind of knew that he, his time was up and something was going to happen when he gave his last speech. And he said, you know, I've been to the mountaintop and I see the promised land, but I might not get there with you, um, but our people will get there. And What that means to me is that we continue in this fight and maybe we won't see full justice in our lifetime, but maybe our grandkids and great grandkids will. So the question is, what seed do we plant today? And there's a lot of things that we are privileged to benefit from today because of our martyrs in the civil rights movement and other movements in this country. You know, the reason why we do have some women's rights and some immigrant rights is because somebody did sacrifice before us. So just got to keep that in mind. The one thing I'll tell people also is, you know, in every community in America, wherever you are, I don't care where you are, there's always an organization or multiple organizations that are working on issues that you care about. And it doesn't even matter to me what it is that you care about, whether you care about refugees and refugee rights, whether you care about after school programs and you want more young people in your community to have access to mentors or if you care about, you know, making sure that more people in your community have access to nutrition and nutritional information, or you care about, you know, again, reproductive rights, or you care about racial justice, you know, it doesn't even matter. The point is, is that there's somebody in your community that's doing that work. And whether, and if you are not able yourself to do that work, please support those people. You know, whether that means you're giving, you know, $20 a month to a local community organization, in your community. And even a lot of times people think $20 is a lot of money. And I know that for some people it is. Um, But there's also some of us who, you know, buy a latte at least once a week for $5 to enjoy. Maybe we can say to ourselves, you know what, this week I'm going to put that $5 aside and I'm going to, you know, at the end of the month, I'm going to have $20 and I'm going to give it to a local organization. So support local organizations and local organizers um, in your community. Show up. If you see something on Facebook or you see uh, something on social media or you see a, you know, a flyer in your local coffee shop or at the laundromat that says, you know, Friday, five o'clock, we're going to have a vigil or we're going to have a rally for a racial justice, economic justice or any issue that really means something to you show up because sometimes people think that, oh, nobody's going to miss me. I'm only one person. But I always say to people, one plus one plus one plus one is mass mobilization. This is how we show people that this is an issue that our community cares about. So never underestimate the power that you bring even as one individual to a space. The last one I'll say also is, or there's two more things. 
you know, this people sit, think this is like cliche and they're like, really register to vote and vote, please. I know that, you know, electoral politics is not the way to liberation, but it's harm reduction. And as long as we can keep out bad people from continuing to increase that harm on our people, it's worth going to the polls for that. You know, even if that's the mere minimum, sometimes some of us are lucky and we're actually able to elect socialists and elect people who are really powerful and bold and brave and transformative. Sometimes it's just about maintaining the status quo guy that you have. So as long as we're not bringing more harm to our people. So register to vote, get your friends to register. And then when it's time to vote, go to the polls and try to do the best that you can do. Because sometimes doing the right thing is also the hard thing to do. So I'm not saying that it's always going to be fun to vote for somebody. And the last thing I'll say is, and it brings me back to when we talked about the experience of Muslims in the post 9-11 era, get to know your neighbors. We live in a digital age, um, you know, we're behind screens, um, even when we're walking in the street or at a coffee shop, we're looking at our laptops, we're looking at our phones, and we forget that there are human beings that are around us. And when I think about the experiences of Muslim Americans, I say to myself, what if our neighbors just knew us more? What if we had deeper relationships with our people? If I had a deep relationship with my neighbor, if my children played with our neighbors, if we shared food, if we shared dinner, if we shared holidays together, I probably am going to feel a different way if I saw ICE agents roll up on their house. I think I would feel a bit more bolder to protect somebody that I really knew and somebody that I loved. And so I say to people, do the simplest thing. Do you know who your neighbors are in your building? The guy who lives downstairs from you, do you know his name? Do you know who he is? When you're at work in your cubicles, do you know who the guy is three cubicles down from you? Do you just walk by them every day as if they're some robot doing some work? No, they're a human being that you should probably introduce yourself to. So I just say that people get to know one another. There's a a, a mantra or a chant that they use in the um, movement. It, it's uh, by Asada Shakur and it ends with saying, we must love and protect one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. And I always say to people after we say that chant, how do we love and protect one another if we don't know one another? And so just know one another, just get to know one another. And that's what I'm excited to do when I come to Seattle, just to get to know more people. Linda Sarsour is an activist and organizer. She currently leads the Muslim-led digital organizing platform Empower Change and Until Freedom. She was one of the main organizers of the 2017 Women's March and has worked in intersectional organizing for 20 years. She's the author of We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders. Sarsour will be in Seattle at the Rainier Arts Center this coming Sunday at 3.30 p.m. It's hosted by Valiant Mountain Fellowship. You can find more information at kbcs.fm. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.